Welcome to the New Models Podcast. Our guest today is the writer and researcher Sam Moore, who together with Alex Roberts wrote the recently published book, The Rise of Ecofascism, Climate Change and the Far Right, from Polity Press. Analyzing the relationship between far-right extremism and politics governing the natural world. In addition to hosting his own podcast with Alex called 12 Rules for What, Sam also leads the Kelepsology group that meets weekly via the New Models Discord and has just launched its own Substack. This conversation was recorded April 2nd and 3rd, some five weeks into Russia's war in Ukraine, a time when global order is in flux along with seemingly everything else. With Sam, we discuss new models to better understand nature, politics, a fascist resurgence, and how climate change will be a force multiplier for it all. I'm Lil Internet, joined by Carly Busta. Our guest is Sam Moore. Let's get into it. Okay. Well, welcome to the New Models podcast. We are today joined by Sam Moore, who we are very lucky to have as part of the New Models community. You may know him as Crude Futures. Sam is the author, the co-author with Alex Roberts of The Rise of Ecofascism, Climate Change and the Far Right. If you live in Europe or the UK, you may already have a copy of this book in your hands right now. If you live in the US, you will soon be able to by... uh, April the 19th, I think. April the 19th. Although there are logistical problems with the shipping because all the ports are stuck. So maybe Uh, you might physically get it April 20th. Sam, would you introduce yourself? I'm a writer and researcher, basically. I cover the far right. And increasingly what I'm covering is the politics of collapse. And also I think about pop culture sometimes as well. (laughs) Uh, It's not all doom and gloom, unfortunately. And I'm... One half of a research collective called 12 Rules for What, which is obviously a combination of uh, Jordan Peterson's book with a, a Lil John meme. We do podcasts, and as you said before, we, we wrote two books, Post-Internet Far Right, which kind of covers the far right in the age of the post-internet, which is not obviously the part of time in history when the internet has disappeared, but it's the point at which the internet has become in some ways dissolved. It's just hidden into the background of like mm. everyday life. Um, the way I got to this house is because you sent me like a, a pin, right? Um, we all kind of navigate our way around the world via the internet without it being in any way kind of exceptional or different from the conditions of life in general. So that's what I mean basically by the post-internet. Of course, it's also a name of of an art movement, which is kind of obliquely referenced in the title, but um, (laughs) let's not get into that. So the... (laughs) LD50 bracketed. Bracketed. Fully fully bracketed. (laughs) Put in a cage. What's that? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Precisely. (laughs) (laughs) We also wrote a book called, as we're talking about today, The Rise of Ecofascism, which is about environmentalism and the far right, or ecologism and the far right, perhaps, like a, a broader question of how politics relates to nature and what the far right does in that conceptual in that tension between the two. How do people politicize nature? How does nature present itself as a kind of antagonist to politics? And how does the far right metabolize, construct, make itself weapons out of that problem that nature is for politics? One thing I appreciate is that the in recent years, for very good reasons, the market has been showered with books like David Wallace Wells' The Unhabitable Earth, Elizabeth Colbert's multiple titles, including Under a White Sky, Can We Save the Natural World in Time, and of course, her earlier book, The Sixth Extinction, or even reprints of classics like Bill McKibben's The End of Nature, which was first published in 1989. And these books are really important. They do a lot to animate the intensity of the challenge that we're facing. And they do give it a kind of unified framework for addressing it in some mediatizable way. But these books also do two things which are a problem, and I hope we can unpack them in in detail. One is they speak about climate change in a monolithic way, as though it's this thing that happens, it's this nuclear bomb that goes off, and then we respond to it or we perish. And the other thing they do is that they present it as this shepherd's tone of, if we don't act now, we're all going to die. And yet, I mean, Bill McKibben wrote 
the end of nature in 1989 and we're still here, maybe in an impoverished form, but we're still here. So it sets up this kind of not useful discourse for thinking about climate change. And the one thing I really appreciate about your new title, The Rise of Ecofascism, Climate Change and the Far Right, is that it breaks the monolithic climate change down into many different things that are all happening asynchronously. It looks at how mundane climate change is in the way it plays out and how the policies that we enact for the big monolithic climate change have knock-on effects that sometimes exacerbate the parts of climate change that will metastasize and turn into bigger problems. That's a really long preamble, but I just wanted to emphasize the fact that this is a climate book that I think we need now because it gives us a fundamentally different angle I'm just thinking about this very unwieldy issue of environmental change or climate change. Uh, thank you. That's really, really flattering. I'm really great to hear. I think also there's a there's a monolithic conception to the far right as well that True. people have, which is partially a consequence of the collapse of the capacity of the left. Because if what the left is capable of doing and has been capable of doing for perhaps the last kind of 10, 20, even longer than that, perhaps years, is moderate a kind of symbolic exchange on the internet, hmm. then it will tend to think that the far right is a collection of symbolic exchanges on the internet because it has no power over real policy. It has no power over politics in its kind of more mundane, but also like broader sense, right? The collection of policies that put up this particular building construction over there, which is obviously in some ways vaster, more material, more integrated into the whole processes of construction of the world than is uh, tweeting, but also at the same time, much more kind of mundane and, and also at the same time, much less politically exciting. And so because there's this kind of collapse in the left's general capacity, it tends to see things like climate change as an undifferentiated catastrophe hmm. because it doesn't have the mechanisms to respond to the differentiation that it, climate change actually is. It doesn't have a viable collection of policies, perhaps, or a viable collection of strategies for dealing with that variegatedness, and therefore it all becomes doom, it all becomes apocalypse, hmm. and so on. There's also a, a tendency to think in terms both on the left and indeed on what we are calling broadly eco-fascist tendencies to divide politics up into a collection of moral stakes. Hmm. People are good, people are bad. And on the right, what this does is it makes it impossible to view climate change. That is, for QAnon people, let's say they've divided the world up into absolutely good, Donald Trump, blah, blah, you know, the white hats, you know, and so mm. on. The absolutely bad Hillary Clinton and, you know, a whole collection of kind of other um, really quite mundane figures who I um, do not, you know, deign to speak their names <laughs> in the Democrats, right? Insofar as it makes a clear, hard and fast distinction between those two moral camps, the idea that there would be a slow, incremental uptick in the parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which would lead to a correlated acceleration or increase in global temperature, just doesn't make any sense, right? It's not good, it's not bad, has no moral valence at all. It's just like a fact. It's a biochemical fact. And therefore, I think these forms of homogenization, the homogenization of climate change, the homogenization of the far right, the homogenization of the moral character of politics, these are all responses to a deep lack of capacity for people to act on the world. And as soon as they have capacity to act on the world, they become much more variegated, much more kind of complex in the way they think about it. That's really interesting to think about. We make something monolithic and moral when we have no material way of intervening. Yes. It's a response. And it seems to me that both sides, the eco-fascist side and the left side, are moralizing ideas of nature and ideas of environmentalism in ways that make it impossible for the opposite side to act. For instance, if you are on the left, you may say that using genetic modification and using fertilizer and planting soy and planting corn is creating a kind of monoculture, which is ruining our soil and therefore ruining, quote, quote, nature. Never mind the fact that agriculture is already a kind of geoengineering or construction, but they'll say you're ruining nature. But if you're the farmer and that's your livelihood, uh, what are you going to do? Just simply stop using fertilizer and move to the city and become an ad director? I mean, there's like these moralizations of ways of life. I guess I'm saying this as a way to spend a moment describing the category of nature and how nature and power have long been associated. Like who gets to say what's natural? I mean, if we go back to the ecological collapse of the Bronze Age, that's pretty much where your book begins. We have a correlation between power and what's natural and they seem to reinforce each other. And later, you know, the recent centuries, capitalism has been more or less synonymous with power. So I don't have a fully worked out theory of what nature is, unfortunately, but I do know that it 
presents itself as a particular object, most fully in particular crises. That is, we come to understand what nature is mostly through the sudden presentation of a disaster. Mm. But exactly the way we mediate that disaster, or exactly the way we understand or respond to that disaster, is hugely variegated. And this is where many of the political stakes of what we describe as ecofascism come into play. There's a forms of response to disaster or crisis that see them as social facts being mediated through some sort of natural system. There are responses to crisis that see that particular crisis as a thing in a natural system that has a symbolic valence or purely in a symbolic valence. Mm. It has no material structure at all. And so in some ways, the stakes of what nature is, is not a thing that we can decide in advance of a given crisis. But I think it's something that we have to deal with in the very messy complexities of crises as they arise. Because a conception of nature that is apposite, useful, deployable, capable of being operationalized in a particular crisis will change depending on what the crisis is. Now, that sounds extremely, in some ways, nihilist. Like, I have no conception of nature at all. <laughs> and this is not true. I do genuinely think it's useful to have some basic ligatures of that definition already in play pretty much all the time. But I don't think that it's necessarily possible or even desirable to know in advance of some given crisis what nature is supposed to be in its totality. So to give a concrete example, you would say like if a major change in climate put pressure on a certain supply system, say of oil, suddenly we would judge that as nature is not working the way it's supposed to. We've done something to ruin nature. But could you just go back in history and animate a few of the different kinds of conceptions of nature? Because I think one's claim to preserving it and restoring it and ideas of environmentalism are built on what people imagine nature to be, whether it's from a Christian point of view or whether it's from a capitalist or colonialist point of view. Can you just maybe give us a few examples? One thing to say about that is that the the person who gives what I find the most compelling account of how nature and capitalism, this nature culture interface, works is, is Jason Moore mm-hmm. uh, in his book, Capitalism in the Web of Life. So Jason Moore's conception of the nature culture interface is that capitalism in particular is a way of putting nature to work and then nature goes on strike, nature puts its price up and so on. And of course, he's been criticised by other eco-socialists for this conception of crisis that only sees, that in some ways, gets rid of the notion of nature entirely and only sees the crisis of nature as it appears for capitalism or as it appears for the ruling class in capitalism. And so this is something we talk about in the book with regards to, for example, the way in which Donald Trump or Jair Bolsonaro or Matteo Salvini in Italy, in which they mediate the crisis of climate change because they don't engage with climate change. They're all denialists Mm -hmm. in various forms. They don't engage with climate change as a climactic problem, a problem in nature. Hmm. They engage with climate change as a social phenomena. That is the thing that is causing people to increasingly arrive at larger and larger numbers on the southern border of the US. And their response is at that level of a a social Hmm. phenomena, a social problem. And I think, therefore, it's really important, and I'm going to sound like a kind of old-fashioned Marxist here, to give an account of nature that is not about nature as much as it's about the crisis of nature as it is represented for the people who are most brutalized Hmm. by those social crises. Hmm. So the question is not like, what does the crisis in the nature culture interface mean for the ruling class? Because what it means there is impetus to put up border walls, impetus to further securitization and so on. What it should mean for us politically, I think, is how does nature present itself as a crisis for those who are brutalized by its falling Mm. apart, by its catastrophes? You make a point in your introduction that power gets to say what nature is. Power also gets to say what is a crisis in nature. It's a really interesting distinction because, of course, there are quote, quote, catastrophes or aberrations in nature that are happening continuously all the time. But where attention is focused and where, quote, quote, relief efforts are placed is contingent on what power says is a veritable crisis, the definition of crisis. And that's like you can have lead in the water for years and years and years and nothing is done about it. But then, you know, Hurricane Katrina happens. It's really mediagenic. The president gets to go down and say, I mean, this is also what you were talking about. I'll let you say it. So George Bush, immediately after Hurricane Katrina goes on TV and he invites the American public to imagine that Hurricane Katrina was a nuclear strike on the US. <laughs> not that it was a natural disaster, not that it was a natural disaster made more likely by a uh, process of climate systems breakdown, but that it was a nuclear strike. And therefore, it requires further investment in the US's nuclear deterrence arsenal, further investment in you know, all the kind of securitization apparatus that we talk about in the book. That's an absolutely extraordinary example of someone simply taking a crisis, presenting it 
as to the public, a, a crisis for the ruling class, and then simply running with that politicization rather than a, you know, something more kind of robust, I think. I mean, there may be no better example in the past 20 years of a direct correlation by a politician of one's resources and one's defense, this question of yep. securitization. It was the titration point where you're like, oh, right, resources are the thing that we're defending here, not even people. We're yep. defending resources. And here's a really cinematic backdrop to make that point. It is interesting that, I don't know if it was just cynical instrumentalization of this crisis to make an analogy that it was like a, a nuclear bomb and then use that to increase military funding or something. But I was also thinking of things that are analogous to climate systems breakdown, as you call it. COVID-19 could serve as somewhat of an analogous situation. Another analogy, though, I thought of, climate change, it's really a stochastic threat rather than one thing, right? It comes up chaotically, unexpectedly, irregularly, but more often, the worse it gets. And so something maybe that's more analogous as a stochastic threat would be like the war on terror, which is terrorism is always stochastic disasters. There are these crises that pop up unexpectedly in different places. And of course, that also led to a huge mass mobilization of weapons and focus and, and money. So I wonder if the threat of another human being is always more galvanizing than a threat from nature. But maybe the question should be asked kind of in the inverse, where it's like, what do these parallel, seemingly putatively parallel examples not have in common with the way that climate change plays out? So I think the main difference is the matter of containment. The question of whether or not you can reliably distribute violence of the war on terror in such a way as that it doesn't affect your super-imperial consumer nation too much, namely the US and Europe, has been answered. I think you basically can, right? You can fight the war. It ruins people's lives in Afghanistan. It ruins people's lives in Iraq, in Syria, and so on. Lots of people in Yemen die unnecessarily, brutally. Loads of people are, in huge numbers of places around the world are brutalized and have their lives destroyed. Nevertheless, that doesn't affect the US too badly. and doesn't affect Europe too badly. Yes, there are sporadic terrorist attacks. And these are catastrophic things for people involved. But on a social scale, they don't shred the society. Or rather, what they do shred is the sense of social security that people rely on. So there's a, there's a certain geography to the war on terror, which allows it to be pushed back, basically. That's not going to be the case for climate change. Things like increasing numbers of droughts will probably cause the movements of people around the world. Um, I should say, and it's kind of important to emphasize this again and again, the literature on exactly how migration relates to climate change is uncertain. It's full of very wide margins of error. There have been lots of kind of scare stories in some ways about the, you know, a billion migrants who kind of like, well, all of whom will apparently try and settle like in your town, wherever you happen to like, <laughs> live in the kind of the fantasy of the, the racist imaginary. But nevertheless, I think there is a kind of scale to the effects of climate change and a inconvenient geography to the effects of climate change. That will mean that containerization uh, or, con or containment rather, containerization, <laughs> uh, infrastructural Freudian slip will not function. It's also a case that there is a long delay, right? So people probably know this. When you put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it stays there for a very long time. It continues to have a radiating effect. And therefore, you are always experiencing the effects in the weather system, in the climate system from emissions made a long time ago. And therefore, there is no point at which you can stop and then it will suddenly all be over. Whereas I think you probably could do that for the war on terror. Like you probably could just like give up and terrorism wins. Congratulations to terror probably, <laughs> for winning the war on terror. Yeah, I think that's the main dimension, the geography of it. Right. But all of this does reorient our idea of what climate change preparedness might be to an idea of securitization and that from a nation state point of view and a policymaker point of view, that is the framework they're thinking through. One last thing with this, though, is I'm thinking of it in terms of a framework of what threats and what narratives galvanize action. And I do wonder, has there been anything akin to the scale of COVID-19 or the war on terror? The example people always reach for is the Second World War, right? So that we need like a mobilization like that, or maybe sometimes they're like the Marshall Plan, obviously right. the, Green, the Green New Deal is obviously named that mm -hmm. in order right. to galvanize that exact kind of response. You're right that they was mostly ineffective. That's mostly because of the enormous degree of sunk costs within fossil fuel infrastructure, which mm -hmm. sounds like a really obvious point and is really obvious, but nevertheless, it is the dominant geopolitical fact mm -hmm. in the world at the moment. There are trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of sunk costs in oil infrastructure. Inevitably, some of that must be recuperated for capitalism to continue to exist. And that is the basic kind of geopolitical fact that I think all climate change discourse comes back on, falls back on and so on. Mm -hmm. It's not 
people don't want to change, right? It's the the material structure of the entire world is like constructed around a single thing. I mean, many things that are interesting about the Russian war in Ukraine and what that's laid bare, but one certainly has been this fossil fuel infrastructure as we're seeing the world realign, trying to X Russia out more or less unsuccessfully. So this goes back to the the question you're asking, which is the question about finance and how finance relates to this kind of thing. In the book, we we play out essentially three different scenarios in our in our heads. These are kind of various paths for the far right into into the climate crisis and how they might respond. We think one is a kind of a a neo-Nazi collapse cult. The far right stays essentially subcultural, but it's stochastic violence, it's forms of terrorism that it embodies generalize essentially. Um, you get bioconservatism as people start to upgrade themselves in all kind of biological ways over the next kind of few decades. <laughs> the real human movement takes off and so on. And, you know, various groups like this terrorist group called Individuals Tending Towards the Wild, which is a anarcho-individualist terrorist group in Mexico, uh, which has murdered a lot of scientists. That kind of terrorism, that kind of bioconservative terrorism takes off. That's the least connected with finance, right? Least connected with infrastructure capital on a global scale. The second scenario is is called fossilized reaction. It's about the ways in which the far right alloys itself, sticks to fossil fuel infrastructure. You get this with the AFD, you get this with the the Polish far right, you get it with all kinds of far rights across Europe. Uh, Obviously, the Republican Party is like doing exactly this thing, right? They completely integrate their political program with the defense of fossil infrastructure because they know that it is the backbone Mm. of capitalism. And the third one is the much more kind of speculative one whose signal marker, I think, at the moment is the 2019 coup in Bolivia. I'm not going to get too conspiratorial. I should note Mm. that the president who was put in the interim after Morales, also from the same party, said that he thought that Elon Musk and Tesla and so on were involved in the coup because... Bolivia in South America is one of the countries with the most resources, but the least well exploited lithium reserves, mm-hmm. right? And this allows for a kind of move and the, the Morales government, although they were kind of moving towards contracts with German companies and so on towards the mining of that, were not going fast enough and not on good enough terms because they wanted to have more money basically for the indigenous people of Bolivia. And Morales is, of course, cooed by uh, a right-wing Christian uh, force, and which has an extraordinary degree of utility in the South American context. In some ways, South America is the model for all three of these different futures. In the US and the UK, and perhaps across Europe, people have a history of the far right that has three points. The KKK, the Nazis, and Trump. That is just not a viable history of the far right. Like The far right is a much more diverse phenomena. And I think the most important thing that we need to kind of focus on and think about how the far right might operate is thinking about South American far right movements, paramilitary movements, but also that kind of like Bible bashing, extremely hard right Bolsonaro style far right movement, which is not fascist in its conception, but it's much more elitist, authoritarian, Christianized, and so on. Let's hold on two things there. When we started this conversation, we said climate change happens in many different places. It's stochastic, its expressions are stochastic. It's like the William Gibson cliche, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. (laughs) Totally. The the climate change disaster is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. Precisely. I, I mean, I don't know if the analogy also tracks for fascism, but could you flesh that out a bit? Yeah, so in the same way that I said that there was a need in some ways to approach crisis from a particular position in order to find out what nature is, right? We need to approach it from the position of the people who are brutalized by the crisis in order to understand the way in which we should experience or in ways which we could develop a, a fully political notion of nature. The way in which we define fascism in the book is a strategic definition, right? It's not a neutral definition. I know people are going to be like, oh, you're not objective. You're not like, no, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not objective on the question of fascism. <laughs> I, I'm not. The risk of losing my kind of scholarly objectivity is significantly less to me than the risk of fascism returning. So the definition we give is this definition that is meant to be strategic. It consists of three parts. And the reason why it consists of those parts is so that it can be an object we could pull apart. We could see the divisions within it. And this is the importance of not homogenizing the far right, because the far right is actually lots of different contradictory projects simultaneously happening. One of those projects is a project of murder, like just kind of straightforward terroristic murder. These exemplars are things like the Christchurch shooter and so on. That kind of fascism, that kind of expression is paramilitary violence. That form has been, since the Second World War, essentially distinguished or cut off from the other two expressions, which are a racial mass movement and an authoritarian state. And so the question of fascism is not, are people good or bad? Do they have the right beliefs or not? Mm -hmm. But the question is, what or who or how is this coalition of these three parts cohering 
in the present moment? And how can we make sure that the distinctions between the three parts, the contradictory aims they in fact have, are able to be distinguished, pulled apart, separated out, so that we don't have a condition under which things like political violence of the form of like kind of just indiscriminate killing return to politics under conditions of a racial mass movement. It's important these three things mm-hmm. do not cohere. And so that's the definition of fascism we use, is these three things cohering. I mean, in your intro, you clarify that, you know, why would you write a book on the rise of eco-fascism? Are you fiending for stories of no. violence? <laughs> yeah. No, not at all. But as you say quite clearly, it's to better understand far-right movements in relation to climate change so that we can, one, respond more productively yep. to whatever signals they're putting out there, and two, to act in ways in the pursuit of mitigation of the harshest effects of climate change that are less vulnerable to right-wing co-optation. Yes. It's like your two-pronged reason for doing this, which does make a lot of sense. I wonder, I mean, fascism is this term that's used so broadly and that is thrown around, of course, in the internet all the time. What's your working definition? I'm sure you've done this a million times. What is your working definition of eco-fascism specifically? Because I think a lot of people just think Ted Kaczynski, but that's a very limited vision. Also, I would like to add with fascism becoming such a slippery and charged word, in some sense, lost defining a particular thing, why is it still important to use this word as a category and what can be considered under it? So partially it's because of the thing, reason you were giving earlier, right? Which is that there are certain things that are galvanizing for action. And the notion of ecofascism is definitely one of them. Um, it allows people, and this is maybe kind of too cynical or something, right? Like it's a good title. Like mm-hmm. It does make people pay attention to the thing you're talking about. The term we actually use in the book by and large is far-right ecologism. And we define that as a collection of ways in which People intervene into or construct ecologies, quite broadly conceived, in a way as to produce or reinforce or militarize or deepen racial hierarchies. This is a very capacious definition, and it allows us to talk about the history of, say, colonial nature management, which, of course, in its kind of Lockean mode, declared that people who had not done European-style farming were not properly (laughs) of the land and therefore could be expelled from it and so on, but also allowed people to be put to work, black people to be kind of enslaved and so on. These kind of conceptions are of a piece, but they're also quite kind of vague. Oh, it's a very general category. When it comes to the question of fascism, it's much more precise. And I think, although it is quite a slippery definition in the popular discourse, nevertheless, the scholarly definition is like really quite like, mm-hmm. there, there are these useful definitions. And although the book is not meant to be like a kind of a scholarly contribution, it is meant to speak to a movement. It is meant to speak to a collection of people who are trying to dismantle the emergence of a fascist coalition. Nevertheless, we are quite rooted in that scholarly tradition. The definition we give is it's a form of political behavior which attempts to purify and expel a radically separate other from a homogenous body politic through paramilitary means. That's a very precise definition. That doesn't cover most things. That doesn't cover most things that have been called fascist. It doesn't cover Donald Trump. It doesn't cover a whole bunch of people who have been kind of casually called fascist in the last 10 years. But nevertheless, the reason for that precision in the definition or the insistence on the definition is the strategic question that we have to be able to get a handle on something by noticing its internal contradictions. And it's in those internal contradictions that we can make it fall apart. So if I understand correctly, then any party who acts in a fascist way and uses some definition of the climate can be an eco-fascist. So it's not necessarily like, oh, you're a John Muir type or a Ted Kaczynski type who cares very much about preserving wildness. It could actually be that you believe it's man's right or they probably would say man, humankind's right, you know, man's right to um, reap what they will of the soil and anyone who is blocking them from God's giving gift is therefore interrupting the natural course of things. And then they could be considered also a kind of eco-fascism. They're using nature as the excuse for their fascism. Or, or perhaps a way to think of it is climate change is happening and it is causing threats to the security of their nation. So whether perhaps they're not even addressing huh. the causes of climate change, perhaps they're just running on a platform of hardline against immigration or an other who uh, has arrived. Is that included, would you say? Yes, absolutely. So so the two things you're giving these examples, I think, are 
the two parts of a contradiction that ecofascism sits on. There's a tension in capitalism, in its expansionary dynamic, in that it has to endlessly expand and therefore encounter new forms of nature, and at the same time putting them to work, and therefore in some ways destroying them and causing various forms of environmental crisis. But at the same time, capitalism, in order to convince people that they have to be subjected to the regime of domination that they are, has to invent things like the nation state, the homogenous people, and so on, in order to rule them more effectively. The problem is, these two parts, the expansionary dynamic and the nation state or the particular political formations that capitalism develops in order to justify itself, these two things come apart endlessly. There are always crises in the relation between the two. And so the form you're identifying of the absolute rule or the absolute right to nature is one part of this capitalist expansionary dynamic. And the thing you're talking about, the nation state being threatened by this expansionary dynamic, these are simply two parts of the contradiction which ecofascism sits across. And I think so the reason why both examples are useful is because they are both forms that will be tried to be adopted simultaneously. This is one of the main contradictions of burgeoning ecofascist thought and action. Hmm. And that's important to the definition of ecofascism, that it sits across a contradiction. I do think that is so helpful. I mean, so many of the climate-focused books have really assumed that we all have the same view of nature and of the world and a certain common moral understanding. And it's actually much more complex than that. And uh, it's interesting to think about fascism as sitting across those two aspects. In our, in our instruction, we quote a book, I think, which is even from 2010, where someone says something like, of course, everyone thinks that the era of climate change will herald a time of tedious depolitization, technocratic management of the life world and so on. And this genuinely was the conception of climate change and what it would do to politics, that it would bring people together, right. that it would inaugurate a kind of a eco-blairism or something. Uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> but that's all fallen apart since the great financial crisis. I think because of a general tendency towards politicization. There is this idea that technology is a threat to these ideas of the natural state, but we also know that it is likely geoengineering and even genetic modification will likely be help in reducing some of the pressures. In the same sense, there seems to be this return of trad values, including among the like hip, younger, Gen Z or whatever. The yoga right. The trad values, yoga right? I mean, oh, no, but those, no. no, like that's Nick not Fuente's trad. style of like trad values. So Modi, the prime minister of India, has called for greater attention to yoga in uh, discussions of climate change because he thinks of it essentially a spiritual transformation. But I think the question of how Indian fascism relates to this uh, you know, categories are, is kind of more complex. I should say perhaps that India and Brazil are probably the two places where these three parts I was mentioning earlier, the authoritarian state, the racial mass movement, paramilitary violence, where those three things are coming together most fully in the present moment. So how does the kinds of return to trad values relate to climate change or the crisis of nature or something? I think it's the, the principal mode in which people are made now, in which we become subjects, is to find ourselves the inheritors accidentally or to find ourselves compelled by various forms of compulsion that we didn't try and get for ourselves. We find ourselves, wow, oh, oh I, have a, I have an addiction to the internet. I'm uh, addicted to porn. Oh, I'm addicted to alcohol. What an accident. I'm addicted to, you know, this kind of thing. And so people experience themselves as compelled in two distinct ways. On the one hand, they find themselves compelled to consume through various forms of addictions, and they find themselves compelled to produce as workers on the marketplace and so on. And these are extremely gender differentiated compulsions. And the fantasy of the far right that it produces instead of those is that there will be a form of compulsion, namely race, that allows you to get back to a form of effortlessness that is less and less degrading, tiring, boring, and so on, because it accords with your natural type, right? Because it accords with like what you at your most deepest are. This is in some ways the same gesture or the same kind of advertising ploy as I get all the time on Instagram when I'm advertised these chronotype productivity apps. Like <laughs> if you are a, a wolf chronotype, then you need to get up at 5 a.m., journal for three hours, go to the gym and do this, <laughs> and work in a pack and blah, blah, and this is your type. And then if you are a, a bear, you need to you know sleep late and then, I don't know, do some physical exercise. And they're all kind of the same, but there appeals to a feeling of inertia that I think people feel very, very deeply at the mm -hmm. moment. And that inertia is particularly gendered. Not that men feel inertia and women don't, or that women feel inertia and men don't, but they both feel there is a conspiracy against them, <laughs> that the inertia is only against them and them alone. And therefore, there's a, a wish to get out of that feeling of inertia by attaching yourself to a deeper compulsion. And that deeper compulsion for the far right comes in the form of race. So in some ways, this is not about climate change. This is just about a return to natural values under conditions of a, a decade-long reverberations of a financial crisis. 
I was going to say a lot of the most popular films about a dystopian future due to climate collapse, Children of Men or the bad Netflix movie, What Happened to Monday. Uh, It's all about restrictions on population, that the population growth Mm. is the problem and that people can no longer have children or are no longer allowed to have children. Is that fear or this idea that population and reducing population is needs to be or is going to be the focus of addressing climate collapse. Is that just pure instrumentalization by people who actually just believe in these sort of racist trad narratives? Or is overpopulation actually a focus of population people concerned about the climate? Is declining, right. I mean, functionally. So I don't know exactly how that's going to play out. I have no particular theory about it. One thing there is to say, though, is that there is a distinction between various forms of Malthusianism that have been quite characteristic on the far right over the last few years, which is when Malthus was originally writing, he's writing about the apparent profligacy, the apparent, um, they just have too much sex, the colonized people. They have too much sex. They don't know what they're doing. They just have too many children. And then because they have too many children, they can't feed them. They will die in famines, right? That's what Malthus is talking about. And so he's diagnosing a kind of a, a lack of civilization amongst the colonized people. Whereas, of course, English people or, you know, whoever, the Germans, perhaps, uh, the French, probably not. But like, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, it it depends on the kind of the exact interpretation of the the time. But the civilized people know how to control themselves. They are civilized. Whereas lots of neo-Malthusian or far-right Malthusianisms at the moment are the opposite. The problem is that we have too much culture. The problem is we have too much civilization. We need to return to a kind Mm. of regulatory structure of, of nature. Which, in some ways, so this is another kind of astonishing thing. We quote an anthropologist, okay, anthropologist, he's a nutcase, <laughs> called Ed Dutton, who, in a podcast with Richard Spencer, leader of the All Right, nominally, calls for what he describes as a return to Darwinian conditions, mm. which, in the context of the conversation beforehand, it's only really possible to interpret as a call for greater degrees of child mortality. Mm. He's like, the problem we have is that not enough children die, like in the first five years of life. That is kind of what he's diagnosing as the problem. That's the only real way I can interpret what he says in that conversation. So on the one hand, you do get these things like the population consortium or whatever it's called, which are these kind of more or less technocratic kind of wonkish attempts to respond to the population growth in different parts of the world. And on the other hand, you do get these extraordinarily brutal calls essentially for the deaths of children. And I don't know exactly how those two impetuses, which seem so misaligned, but essentially address the same kind of problem, will respond or how they'll interact in the future. You can imagine a threat of eco-fascism that makes an appeal to nature by making an appeal to cruelty, essentially, that human rights are actually unnatural and to appeal to some sort of Darwinian sense of competition and only the strong survive, that itself could be a... That is, that is exactly right. Like there's a figure called the Bronze Age pervert yeah. who wrote the thing called the Bronze Age mindset, who we talk about in the book, who has this figure, a kind of a non-Darwinian form of evolution, or what he describes as a nemesis. Nemesis is the thing in nature that responds to overgrowth, to there being too many animals, too much production and so on, with just an indiscriminate, amoral destructiveness and violence and death. And that is the thing that he affirms most strongly throughout that book. The Superman, in the Nietzschean sense, who is able to wield the power of nemesis. This is the leader we need. This is the people we need. And this is an idea you find across the far right. Mm. It's a French writer called Guillaume Fay, who makes more or less the same argument about like great authoritarian leaders and so on. You get the same thing in neo-reactionary discourse about the need to control population in order to produce these kind of city-states and so on. And so this figure of the great leader who has a certain kind of power to themselves is, of course, a very classical fascist idea as well. <laughs> So we're returning now with Sam. Our previous recording had to end abruptly because Sam's helium-powered dirigible, (laughs) carbon-negative helium-powered dirigible that was leaving for London was taking off. Right, we didn't want him to miss it. Right, right, right. (laughs) So now we're back with Sam calling in remotely from an undisclosed location. I'm brewing up a vat of algae uh, to consume for the next few weeks so I don't have any (laughs) other kind of carbon outlets. Very good. Have you heard that theory that Mana, like in the Bible. Yeah, unleavened bread, yes. No, but he gave them mana, mana. also. It was some th- machine they made that apparently gave them food for the march across the desert or whatever. But the theory is that it was actually, they were growing algae oh. to eat. And that was the mana they were eating algae that they were growing uh, in trays of water. We could come full wow. circle. <laughs> well, I mean, there is a certain 
degree of harking back to the ancients in lots of kind of politics of climate change, right? There's a kind of a wish to um, return to something very deep and uh, profound in human history. Uh, I'm not sure it really exists, but nevertheless, it's a definite trope that people deploy all the time. I mean, in your book, you note that often far-right ideologies of environment speak about a natural order of humanity and the environment and a kind of, depending if it's religious or not, God's intention and the way it always has been, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think as much as possible, a adequate response to ecofascism will rely on being able to maintain a certain kind of aesthetics of disaster. This is what we put forward in the book, that we need a kind of political aesthetics of disaster. We need to understand how it is that things fall apart and are destroyed and become terrible. And part of that requires a certain kind of engagement with complexity that all of these fictions of past lives, past historical epochs, where everything was simple, everyone knew their place and so on, they all attempt to kind of wring out complexity from the world to destroy it, to diminish it and so on. In the sense that when there is a disaster, there is then a reason for people to turn to more harmonious ways. You need the disaster in order to compel people towards the fascist narrative. Maybe people are now so stressed that they are able to latch onto it regardless, right? Maybe there's there's no need for a certain kind of transformation. I think what happens in crises is that people simply become aware of the things that were already latent within them, things that were already latent within the social structure. Right. And some of that is genuinely amazing and really kind of heartfelt. People are really, really, really good at helping each other out in disasters quite consistently across all of history. There's no need to think about mutual aid practices in the first, say, month of a disaster. People mm. really do it. The question really for thinking about political response to climate change often comes essentially in the kind of the, the month after that or the second month and then the third month, the fourth month, and the sixth month, and, you know, and so on. And like building institutions that are sustainable through that kind of crisis instead of the immediate disaster. That's such a good point. I mean, we were just saying this about Russia's war in Ukraine. The first month was this cinematic hero narrative where everyone felt very good about fighting for the right side. And there was a very dopamine heavy relationship to this disaster. I think you're so right when you say it's not about the moment of collapse. That's the movie. It's what happens when the tedium sets in and when there's a sense of loss and the turn towards nostalgia. Maybe you could even speak more to that and what options there might be for imagining structures that would be resilient to month two, three, four, five, or whatnot. So in the thing we'd be doing in the Collapsology Reading Group is a discussion of several different kind of temporalities of responding. One is a initial crisis response. We'd be looking at, for example, the case of Lebanon, where kind of a slow degradation of the capacity of the state to reproduce life or people to reproduce themselves has been kind of going on for decades now at this point, but it's been a sudden acceleration in the last few years. So there's that kind of temporality we've been looking at. And there's also the kind of the the thing that one might do after the post-collapse. There's a need, I think, to design forms of political ideas, perhaps not institutions. I don't know much about institutions. I don't think I could give you a kind of blueprint for you know how the building should be laid out and so on, how the department should talk to each other. I have no idea. But what I can do is I kind of think about like political theories and the kind of it's almost design problem now, while we have some degree of time, while we have some degree of kind of intellectual and conceptual resources that are not swallowed entirely by the urgent needs of the moment. Now that we have that kind of luxury that I imagine will disappear, how can we construct a kind of political theory that allows us to get into that long-range temporality, the 200 Mm. years in the future, when we have this extremely strange dark age, where on the one hand, most of the vestiges, most of the structures rather, of modernity probably have fallen apart. But we weirdly still have all of the history of universal humanism behind us. We still have all of the history of the knowledge of quantum mechanics, right? If you imagine the dark ages being played out again, except that they know about subatomic particles, mm-hmm. right? This is the kind of future we're heading towards. And I think trying to think about a political project that could be designed now in order that it could be triggered later or reutilized in that future is one of the things that we're trying to think about in that, that Collapsology group. For anybody who is not part of the New Models Discord community, Collapsology group meets regularly as one of the pillars of the community and we're excited to see some of the work that's coming out of there. There's a line you have in the book where you say, paraphrasing it, in the 21st century, all politics will ultimately be climate politics, which I think is a great way of saying it because all of the 
force multipliers on the environment will make that naturally the way that we think about political decisions. Every single vote that you are making is somehow probably related. Yeah, so there was a recent Joe Rogan episode with Jordan Peterson on, and it got much lambasted on the internet, which was that basically Jordan Peterson just says at the very beginning, I think, so maybe I'm misrepresenting him. He says that when people are talking about climate, what they mean is everything. <laughs> and people were saying, of course, we don't mean everything. We do mean actually it's some sort of quite delimited you know, weather system. And I was thinking about this earlier. And I, I guess maybe he is more right than he knows, right? There is a certain degree of like totality to what we mean by climate, which is exactly the point you're kind of pushing on here with this notion that all politics will be climate politics. And I think there's one metaphor, one way of thinking about that, that affirms a certain degree of intractable complexity to the world, a kind of a composting of all things, right? To use kind of a Donna Haraway metaphor, a composting or a, a merging of everything with everything else in such a way as particular distinctions within the world become quite difficult to reestablish. And I guess one of the ways in which I think about the politics of, of nature now is that I want to both want to affirm this kind of complexity or this kind of embeddedness, but at the same time, I, I do want to make like quite aggressive in some ways political distinctions within that. Like I do not think that we have to evaporate any notion of nature, but I think the notion of nature we need to have is something much more deeply constructed through a notion of solidarity. Mm -hmm. And the way in which we need to think about the current conjuncture, late capitalism and so on, it's simultaneously necessary to affirm a certain kind of degree of mutual imbricatedness that everything in the world has with everything else. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's necessary to acknowledge that we don't have enough time. There is an urgent political task and it's to prevent the end of the world. <laughs> and therefore, lots of the kind of calculations and lots of the kinds of ways in which you might want to be kind of more nuanced and subtle and so on, will need to be just kind of you know, suspended forthright. Right. And that's a major kind of tension, I think, in the way in which we have to approach climate change as a political conjuncture. Uh, because by the time you've worked out what the conjuncture contains, the conjuncture is over and everything is ruined. I mean, and also in that time, probably a right-wing force, which is maybe more libidinally driven, will have already entrenched itself in whatever that crisis is. And we have to yes. be more nimble. I mean, the left is great at hashing out problems at great length and with a lot of nuance and complexity, and that's fantastic. But there's an asymptote that's reached where it no longer is useful to, you know, theory and practice. I mean, I wonder if this is actually a segue to talk about the Ministry of the Future. So something that always pops up in current conversations about climate change, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry of the Future, which is a sprawling near future speculative fiction novel about how the planet is essentially saved from climate change. Or humanity is saved from climate I'm change. sorry, yes, humanity is saved from climate change. We also last night watched First Reformed, the Paul Schrader oh, film yeah. from 2017. And the reason I'm bringing both of these up is because even in Kim Stanley Robinson's book, eco-terrorism does play a role in the saving of humanity. Mm. So you're basically asking, are there ever instances of terrorism or violence in the name of a longer term, like, I don't know, like, well, yeah. Whether or not it's justified, justified is right, kind of a personal right. opinion. But uh, I wonder how you categorize the differences in extra state violence used for the sake of climate. Yeah, I'm, I'm not against political violence uh, and I'm not against people blowing things up. Maybe that's the thing I shouldn't say on the internet. But <laughs> nevertheless, it's true. Insofar as like people doing sabotage, eco-terrorism, perhaps even knocking off a few <laughs> like I'm not entirely opposed to that. But so I think strategically political violence in general, the problem with it is that it's not determinate enough, right? It's not clear enough in its aim because it is excised or like kind of cut off from the rest of the political sphere. It often appears without a particularly well-elaborated justification. Now, there have been examples of this not happening, right? For example, most shamefully, the Christchurch shooter, who is the person who, of course, in some ways stimulated the production of this book, who called himself an eco-fascist, in the immediate aftermath of his atrocity, the pan-European identitarian group, Generation Identity, were invited onto a BBC program, I think it was Newsnight, to give an exposition of what they thought the Christchurch shooter's manifesto was saying. And given that his manifesto, The Great Replacement, is named after a conspiracy theory they had been propagating. This is essentially the equivalent of inquiring after the 9-11 attacks like to Al-Qaeda. Like, what exactly is it that you guys believe? You know, what, are you, what are your critiques of the West and so on? Like, which no one thought to do. No one would decide it would ever happen. And so I don't know what the status of political violence is currently, but I think that 
insofar as it is a viable tactic, it's probably going to have to work out to be more obvious and determinate in its aims and in its like gestures, lest it be part of this kind of coordinated structure of emergent ecofascism. Fascism is always race-based, is that right? It's always like that ethnicity yeah. so race-based. It's an attempt to homogenize a racialized nation state right. through a paramilitary means. And therefore, because of that, the nation is always codified as racially pure, and therefore there has to be an other to be extirpated right. in order that the nation can be uh, achieve its final form. So we've been discussing these sort of individual political movements or responses, but I wonder your feelings on whether there needs to be some sort of political pluralism to adequately address this problem. Perhaps there is going to be a pluriversal political response to climate change that have ideological differences in in belief, but will nevertheless need to work towards the same goal. Do you imagine that this sort of pluriversal response to climate change is likely the way it will move forward or even a desirable way for it to move forward due to the risks of any global homogenizing political project? So in our first book, Post-Internet Far Right, we make a distinction between what we call minimum and maximum anti-fascism. That is, minimum anti-fascism is what you might think of as kind of the classic, or maybe not so classic, but quite recent, in fact, a small squad of people who are focused exclusively on the people who go out on the streets and they wave swastikas around, right? Those people are targeting people who are, everyone would agree are fascist, racist, and so on, right? And then there's a thing we call maximum anti-fascism, which is not to say that it's better, just like, or that it's even in some way just a bigger version of that. It's not just a kind of single thing that is scaled up, but it's a project that attempts to remove the preconditions for fascism from society, right? And those preconditions, and the, the act of kind of like removing those preconditions is not and can never be a exclusive act of the left. What I would say, however, so I think there absolutely is room for in that maximum anti-fascism. And let's not forget, like, almost all political actors since the Second World War, have been expressly and deliberately anti-fascist. And yes, yeah, so I think that, that inevitably will be a requirement for a kind of a pluralistic response. One more slightly kind of nuanced thing to say about it, though. In some ways, it's possible to think about the construction of the late 20th century as coming out of several distinct large-scale anti-fascist projects. So very obviously, the Soviet Union is engaged in a form of anti-fascism, and it does this by repressing the existence of fascism, essentially. And then neoliberalism is another mode of anti-fascism, right? So if you go back and read kind of Hayek and so on, and Wendy Brown has a really great book about this uh, in The Ruins of Neoliberalism, where she talks about the express purpose of people like Hayek and so on to prevent the conditions for fascism from returning, which of course sounds a lot like the thing that I am <laughs> proposing people do now. However, the way in which he diagnoses what fascism is, is completely different from how I would do it, right? And so although the stakes of the debate about what fascism is seems in some ways like very arcane and quite like academic and quite like kind of weird and so on, nevertheless, if you think about each of these projects as being anti-fascist projects and both of them being in their own ways like catastrophic, totally destructive to the conditions of life for people who lived in them, in, of course, very distinct ways, then the definition of fascism and what you think fascism is becomes really, really, really important. And because there is a kind of contestation about that definition, about what the project of anti-fascism is, even though almost everyone seemingly has agreed with it, that's where the kind of the struggle, I think, in some ways lies. Mm -hmm. But basic point, yes, pluralism will be required, but no, we don't really agree on what the thing is we're trying to do. And like that's where the stakes of the kind of contestation become most kind of apparent. And preventing authoritarian anti-fascism in the former Soviet style, which is obviously not on the cards, and also simultaneously preventing something like a new form of neoliberal transformation. These are both valid projects in and of themselves. So there will be a kind of complex strategic question, which I can't answer, unfortunately, in advance. I mean, I don't think I've ever thought about it that way, but of course the 20th century was defined by attempts to stamp out fascism and these anti-fascist answers were not necessarily great for the people who lived in those societies. Yet we can all agree that they're still better than running some state based purely on race and a kind of authoritarian yeah. race-based fear-mongering. It's a very clear example of what a plural-versal response would look like. We've seen it. So yeah. it has to be said that, that, you know, we have seen it, you're right, but the consequences are quite bad for, like, yeah, for <laughs> a lot of people, yeah. right? Like anti-fascism is, is a misfiring project that is always missing its target, apart from in this kind of very minimal mode, which is not to say that the minimal mode is better, just that the minimal mode is less risky. 
And therefore, it's why people, I think, hold to that minimal mode. Like, this is anti-fascism and not the broader sweep of things, because it's, it's just more risky to engage with politics more widely. But I think that's a risk we're going to have to embrace. I think one can go too far with this notion that all the products are anti-fascist. So occasionally I have a thought, and I think, no, that's, that's a wrong <laughs> thought, that UK has probably the most effective anti-fascist organization in the history of anti-fascism. That's the Conservative Party, mm. right? Because it's always been capable of elaborating out to the right broadening its like scope by by utilizing a certain racial nationalist rhetoric absorbing the energy for example most famously of the national front in the 1970s through offering them some kind of red meat and then essentially the threat is kind of absorbed into the conservative party it becomes institutionalized mm. and so on so conservatism itself is a kind of anti-fascism not to say that conservatism is good but like the anti-fascism is not unlike most of its practitioners would like to think ultimately moral and fascism is like ultimately bad Right. I think it's actually much more complex and nuanced than that. I mean, it really makes me feel a lot less bad about the MAGA party or, well, I mean, I guess, I feel like I have Tourette's today. I feel like I'm saying exactly the thing I don't want to be saying. It makes me feel a lot better about conservative, <laughs> conservative parties. No, thinking about them as like a holding pen for would-be fascist rather than just like people with bad politics. It's like, if you think about it as a kind of spleen of the culture that's like taking the thing that is really, really toxic and giving it some kind of context, which is like barely bearable because it's contained, it's, it's more performance than it is action, then um, it makes me feel a lot, or it just gives me a different way of understanding it. I have to say also, the one last thing I understand this is to kind of in some ways roll back the point I just made, which is that inevitably in the context of the climate crisis, those conservative institutions will have to, in order to defend capital, increasingly rely on an alliance with various other people to their right. And therefore, being comfortable with conservatism is itself the long road back to fascism. Mm. Although I still don't have the kind of Zizek opinion, right, where he's, he says famously about the French election, either you come up from Macron or Le Pen, and he's like, well, they're the same thing. Because either <laughs> you have uh, Le Pen now, or you have like four years of Macron, and then you have Le Pen later. Uh-huh. I'm, don't, I'm not that nihilistic. I don't think that's the case. I think there are major differences. But nevertheless, I don't think anyone should be comfortable with conservatism. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, although I do have this feeling that something about the way the internet works Likely, it's just recommendation algorithms that are constantly giving you more of the same. I feel like there's some very like BIOS level way of homogenizing the world. And I feel like society is in the worst state of being primed for embracing any sort of pluriversal politics, at least in my lifetime. I mean, I'm interested actually, Sam, to hear what you have to say, but I also am going to throw in the vector of like web two to web three. And I don't know if you even want to go there with this, but web two did have a homogenizing effect, partially because of the algorithm suggestion, partially because we were all on the same platforms together with TOS that were determined by like CEOs as opposed to democratic processes. Um, But now with web three, I wonder if that colors this question of like, are we really in the worst space ever? Or have we been previously in the past 10 years and now it is getting better? I do agree Web3 will make people more open, but I think it also open a whole bunch of other problems. And I'm not sure where in this in-between And state. who's writing the code for the Web3 spaces? And I mean, actually, Sam, what do you think? I think the really useful concept here is mass associational societies, that the connections between people are a historically contingent fact. People begin to be mass associational very broad timelines, probably in the the late 18th century, right? There's a construction of a mass society as urbanization takes place. People are, the public sphere is constructed and so on. This comes to a head. This has kind of revolutionary dimensions, you know, 1848 and so on, the Paris Commune and so on. And that lasts, that kind of structure of essentially densifying and densifying and densifying and densifying, people having more and more, in some ways, ecological connections between each other, like a kind of a rainforest or something. That process continues basically until the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing I was saying about Hayek earlier, is that Hayek's project, in order to get rid of the threat of fascism, because he thinks that that kind of ecological mess allows for a certain kind of terrifying democratic impulse, which is the taking away of kind of private property rights in fascism and handing them over to the state. He thinks that that terrifying fascist impulse emerges from the complexity. And therefore, in some ways, the neoliberal project, this kind of process of like atomization, as we think of it now, is a deliberate project of neoliberalism to break up mass associational societies. Hmm. And what happens with the internet? It's a very rapid process of reconnecting everyone who is previously atomized, right? And in doing so, it's much more like a monoculture. It's much more like a kind of a artificially planted forest of trees. And then what happens with various kinds of political camps, right, is that you get 
what I guess is a kind of a, an overused metaphor now, but nevertheless, I think quite a useful one, is that essentially you get a kind of like a tree mold or like a parasite that allows it, because it's all a monoculture, because there are no kind of ecological breaks, means that this can spread extremely rapidly amongst the trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, there are forms of kind of disease that seem to grasp whole sections of society all at once because they are rendered so similar, but also so kind of trivially and mediatically connected in a way that mass associational societies had prevented because the connections between them more complex, more dense, and had much more to do with their like everyday reproduction. Whereas now it's kind of a separate thing from the work world, right? It's a separate thing from like civic engagement. Twitter is a is a sphere unto itself. And therefore, because of its kind of separation from everyday life, it has this kind of character of being suddenly overrun by a certain idea, suddenly kind of transformed and so on. But we're still in the kind of the early stages, I think, of that reconstruction of mass associational society. And whether or not Web3 stimulates a new kind of dense connection that allows this superstructural, in the kind of the bad Marxist like kind of terminology, right, like this kind of superstructural Twitter sphere to be like reconnected to the life world that everyone actually lives in because it encodes things like property rights, right? This is the kind of thesis, right? That the, the property rights is the metaverse. Strong property mm-hmm. rights is the metaverse. This is a thesis of a podcast called Bankless, which I recommend everyone go listen to. It's very fun. So, whether or not there's able to be that kind of reconnection via Web3, I think it remains to be seen, as you said. Like, I, don't, I don't know. But I think it's useful to think about this in the context of the last 200 years of the composition of societies, rather than as a, a thing that happens kind of slightly strangely in 2008, isn't it? Yeah, that's a great point. The urbanization, the media that allows that society to see itself reflected. Um, we could talk to you honestly for five more hours. Um, with the interest of wanting to get this out, uh, hopefully tomorrow or the next day, we should probably end. I have one more. You have another question? question? Okay. Um, right now, of course, the climate systems breakdown, global warming is a motivator based on fear or dread or threat, right? So it's this sort of negative motivator. And one imagines the response to it will be driven by this fear. But I also wonder if you think there could be a carrot or a positive motivation that would drive people to act on this. Motivated by something a a bit more hedonic than fear of a disastrous future so i have a standard left-wing answer and i have like a more controversial kind of spicy internet (laughs) answer so i'll give you both the the kind of standard left-wing answer i guess is that things campaigns like the reduction of the working week which has long been a you know an issue for the working class or for the left rather since the 1800s like when it was first taken from six days to five days and so on very excitingly and then the working day was reduced from you know 14 hours to eight and so on so this process should continue. There's been a kind of a weird break where it's just like stopped. And that would be a really, really impressive measure and really great measure for reducing climate change. Like you could just go to work less. You just like like you work less. And that would that genuinely would influence the amount of climate change that happens to quite a considerable degree if we simply work less. Um, time is the only currency worth the same amount to every person. <laughs> yes. Right. There are lots of complicated problems with the four-day work week and so on. But I think as a vision of a future, I think it's more viable than more or less anything else. Kind of the spicier and weirder answer I have is. So there's another reading group been doing, Understanding DAO, which is uh, attempts to get to the bottom of a DAO, any DAO. But the DAO we particularly chose, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, the DAO we particularly chose was Climate DAO because it had incentives and desires that seemed unproblematically good, which is to reduce the total amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And the mechanism by which it did that was to propose that it would lock up in its cryptographic vault on the blockchain a coin called Climber, which was tied to a registry of carbon credits. So what you could do is you could simply put credits into that registry. They'd be transformed into the blockchain. I'm giving a very bad explanation here that comes through if you want to know more. And in doing so, these credits would accrue in value. And they would accrue in value because of an underlying mechanism that was based on another DAO that Climate DAO was a fork of called Olympus DAO. And Olympus DAO had a way of giving credits or giving tokens to its holders in such a way as it was supposed to continuously accrue in value. It's kind of a maximally deflationary currency, deliberately designed in order to do that. Climate DAO inherited that design and therefore it was supposed to, it didn't quite work out, but it was supposed to increase in value over time, giving an extra incentive for people to lock up carbon credits, which were derived from carbon sequestration projects worldwide, into their registry and in return get these credits, which would become more and more and more and more valuable. 
Now, Climber Down didn't work, unfortunately. The prices crashed to basically zero. But I find it more exciting. So maybe this is part of the hedonism that you're kind of calling for. Uh, it's just that I am kind of like interested in it. I mean, that's a bad uh, way of thinking about hedonism. But I am interested in the structure of incentive design around the climate crisis, right? It, that's what Climate Dow is doing. That's what DAOs in general are doing. They are reorganizing, realigning, reconstructing patterns of incentives. They allow essentially a kind of artistic relationship to the structure of economic incentives to emerge. Great way of saying it. Yeah. I mean, crypto, of course, was great for, I mean, maybe in some ways we should be really happy that NFTs were so cringe and onboarded <laughs> such a large number of people because then the more nuanced things that will happen in the Web3 space would have never had the audience. So maybe we should think about it that way because there are a lot of experiments maxing, to be had. Maxing through mids. Maxing through mids. Yeah, exactly. Now we have a bunch of Web3 native users who will have the time and interest to look at other things happening in that space. But had it happened in reverse, had there been a lot of cool, nuanced, socially progressive projects that happened in the Web3 space, it might not have scaled. It never would have scaled. <laughs> exactly. So um, maybe we should close on that note. But just quickly, so the rise of ecofascism, polity books, already out in the EU, coming out in the US, April 19th. Where can people find out more about the work you're doing or anything else that you want to plug in this context? I should say there's a German translation coming out in August as well, if you want to read it in German. I'm kind of terrified about that because I feel like people in Germany are significantly more au fait with this stuff than we are or i am at least and therefore i'm kind of intimidated by the idea of people reading it but whatever other thing would be to say that collapsology has a substack collapsology.substack.com where we're going to be writing articles i think about collapse about the condition of collapse about how to respond to collapse and so on which will i think encompass lots of the things we're talking about now but framed in the hopefully more optimistic frame that we were kind of entering into towards the end of the conversation so i'm um, sam moore writes on twitter and my podcast is 12 Rules for What, which I do with the co-host, Alex Roberts, who also co-wrote the book, I should yeah. say. I feel like I haven't mentioned them out much. Shout out to Alex Roberts. <laughs> Thanks for writing this book with me. All right, excellent. Well, we'll link to all that stuff in the show notes. And thank you again for your time, both IRL and also now virtually. And um, From the carbon negative airship. <laughs> exactly. Anyway. <laughs> Next time you join us, I, I have to pitch you my idea of a eco-narco-hedonic future <laughs> where drugs replace money and no one wants to consume environmentally damaging things anymore because there's a billion poppies blooming in every <laughs> I think backyard. you pitch that like pretty much every podcast in one form or another, but okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. See Thank you later. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast. The Rise of Ecofascism, Climate Change in the Far Right by Sam Moore and Alex Roberts is out now. You can follow Sam's Collapsology group on the New Models Discord, subscribe to the group's writing at collapsology.substack.com, and find Sam and Alex's 12 Rules for What podcast on SoundCloud, and along with everything else in the show notes. We're back soon. See you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Low Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels. Be sure to sign up for the channel mailing list at channel.xyz and stay updated on our upcoming Season 1 public launch.